chapter 6. Now, Deuteronomy, of course, is the fifth of the first five books of Moses. So uh, you can find it there. If you start with Genesis, keep going right until you, until you come to Deuteronomy. Uh, <coughs> Deuteronomy, while you're turning there, Deuteronomy has, a, has an interesting name just because it's the, the Greek name. The Hebrew name is In the Wilderness, Bamidbar. And uh, it is um, what you could probably classify as Moses' farewell discourse, if you will. And uh, there's a great deal in it that's important even to us now, and this is why I thought we should branch out, and, or at least I should branch out and study something other than what's in the New Testament. Uh, <coughs> uh, so Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where we'd like to begin tonight. And in this passage, we find one of the most important passages I think in all the Bible, but uh, it's still an important passage in Judaism today, even. Um, <clears throat> so we will try to touch on uh, on the importance of it to modern Jewish uh, religious practice as well, and you'll find we're not too far off from one another on that. But let's take a look at the first nine verses of Deuteronomy 6. Let's read the passage just because we've got nine verses here to work with and it's not going to be a long uh, passage here. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me, this is Moses speaking, to teach you <clears throat> that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. <clears throat> Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words, which I am commanding you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You recognize perhaps uh, some of the other passages in the uh, New Testament which refer to this. But to illustrate the, the principle that's before us here tonight, uh, we could also consider Deuteronomy 8.3, which says this, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You've heard that passage as well. Because the, of the nature of life in a fallen world, <clears throat> when it comes to the spiritual life, we're often slow to see what our real needs are. And uh, some people never even really fully grasp them. That's why it's so heartbreaking when we encounter people who refuse to accept that they need salvation from eternal punishment. But there's something even more fundamental 
a, a need that's even more fundamental wrapped up in our need for forgiveness from God. God himself says to us in this passage through Moses that the greatest need that we have as people is to know God. It surpasses, in Deuteronomy 8.3, it surpasses even the need for food, even something so basic as eating, pales in comparison to knowing God. So Deuteronomy 8.3 illustrates the principle of what we're going to study tonight in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> and Deuteronomy chapter 6 contains what I think is the weightiest affirmation about God in the Bible. And to understand the center of this passage is to begin to grasp how desperate our need is to know God. And at the same time, to find the solution to that need. Isn't it great? When, you know, when God shows you your need, he also gives you the solution for it. But you know, he intentionally designed us to be incomplete without a relationship with him. So the title of my message tonight is Chew on This. <laughs> see, this passage is real spiritual food. And we'll also see that it's food meant to be eaten slowly. Something you spend a long time on, chewing, mentally, thinking about, and repeating. Now, a relationship with God, of course, is by grace through faith. But your relationship with God must be advanced by diligent obedience for it to have the effect that God designed it for. Indeed, when you take full advantage of the opportunity to have a relationship with God, you will become what God has designed you to be. But you know, this all starts with an outlook on life. Really, it's your view of reality, uh, in fact, that lies at the base of all of this. If you know that God exists, if you believe that God exists and wants to have a relationship with you, you have a starting point to work with. You have the starting point to obey him. You know, nothing in the spiritual life is automatic or magical. Even though it's by grace, through faith, and even though we don't do the work, it's not automatic and it's not magical. Now, uh, we often make the mistake, I think just generally people make this mistake, of thinking if something's supernatural, it must be magical. Okay, now magical means like you, you wave a wand or you do a ritual or you say a, a particular set of words and then something automatically happens. You know, just out of nowhere, something happens. That's not the same thing as supernatural, what we would say when we're talking about our relationship with God. God doesn't do stuff that way. He doesn't do it magically. He works through us and in us to accomplish his goal accomplish his purpose for us. Now, there are some things which happen miraculously, uh, <clears throat> and probably we aren't aware of a lot of the things that do happen miraculously all around us, like getting us here tonight, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> you imagine the danger that you probably, uh, or that you, that you were unaware of driving here tonight, perhaps. But even though his word and his relationship with us are of supernatural origin and effect. None of it happens automatically. And that's why we have to learn how to obey him. So 
from this passage. Now, before we really dive into the passage itself, I, I just wanted to make a remark or two about uh, what your Jewish friends might understand about this passage, because I think it's pretty interesting. Now, um, please understand, I, I'm not an authority on Jewish practice, so uh, I can only tell you what I've read. Um, I do read Hebrew, but uh, modern Hebrew is another matter, and, and modern Jewish practice is another matter. And also, uh, the modern Jewish practice is going to differ depending on who you talk to and which synagogue you go to and, and so on and so on. Uh, just like, of course, there are Christian denominations, there are sort of denominations within Judaism today. But this passage, especially verses 4 and 5, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, is still the most or one of the most important passages for Jews today. Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel. And the first word of verse 4 in Hebrew is the word Shema. It's the Hebrew verb that means to hear, and it's in, it's in an imperative form. So it means, hear, O Israel, that is, Israel, you must listen. Okay, now, hear, of course, means what it does in English. Uh, it means to listen, but it also means to obey, you know, just the way your mother used to say, didn't you hear me? Uh, <laughs> it, the question is not a question of cognition. It's a question of response to the uh, uh, whatever order you were just given to clean up your room or come here right now or whatever it was that your mother would say, didn't you hear me? <laughs> that's, that's the time that you don't want to hear mother, your mother saying, didn't you hear me? But So the first word in verse 4 is the word Shema. And that's why this passage is called the Shema. Uh, and it's a passage that's recited often. Now, you could tell by what we just read that it would lend itself to, to uh, recitation. And uh, it's recited at least weekly, although uh, you, would you will probably find that the uh, more uh, the Hasidic Juda Judaism probably repeats it more often than that. Some people will probably repeat it uh, when they get up and when they lie down, and, and so on, and taking this passage quite literally. Uh, but when you talk to a, a Jewish person, just generally speaking, and you say the Shema, what they're going to think about is not just this passage, but three bits of, of the Torah. Uh, the first paragraph of the Shema prayer, as it's recited nowadays, is Deuteronomy 6.4, and then verses 5 through 9. But before you get to verses 5 through 9, you see it says, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then before you get to, And you shall love the Lord your God, or Ahavta, you say, uh, Blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. Uh, and it was a surprise to me. I've, you know, uh, uh, if you've ever uh, seen movies in which Jewish people recite the Shema, and I've I was watching one the other day, and a and, uh, little girl says, uh, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And then I'm thinking, Wa'ahavta, you know, and you shall love. And she says something else right after that. And then she says, and you shall love the Lord your God, and so on. This is all in Hebrew. So I'm going, what was that other bit there? So I started doing some research and discovered that this other bit there is, is you're supposed to stop 
and pronounce a blessing on God before you continue in the recitation of this prayer. And you're supposed to, in that first line, you're supposed to kind of cover your eyes to, to completely concentrate on the content of the verse. Now, you and I as, as Christians can really learn a lot from that sort of reverence. Uh, and so the first paragraph consists of Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, with a little uh, blessing kind of tagged in there. The second paragraph is Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21. Uh, and it, this is uh, on, the, on the key word, you shall hear. And it, and it shall come about if you listen to the Lord, this will happen. And then the third paragraph is Numbers 15, 37 to 41. And that passage is about the uh, construction of your garments with the tassels uh, to remind you of this piety that you, you must uh, engage in as you recite these passages. So uh, those three paragraphs, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21, and Numbers 15, verses 37 to 41, are the passages that, that uh, uh, if you said the Shema, would come up in somebody's mind as you talk to your friends. Now, we're going to stay in Deuteronomy 6. I'm not going to take you to the other passages and study these, but um, there are really two points I want to get across tonight. The first one is this. Obedience is the proper response to God's blessing. And that's verses 1 to 3. Obedience is never the basis on which your relationship with God is established. That's by grace through faith. Obedience, though, is the proper response to God's blessing. Now, the law of Moses was the constitution for Israel as well as a guide to its spiritual life. But it was given for a people already redeemed. You think about where we are in Deuteronomy 6. We're, we're at the tail end of the Exodus at this point. The first part of Deuteronomy uh, rehearses the geography of, uh, of their wilderness wanderings. And I was reading over that because we're headed to Israel next week. I was reading over that and looking and suddenly uh, noticing all of the geographic place names that are there. And most of us, when we read the scriptures, just kind of place name, place name, you know, kind of lost. Uh, and here we are. Moses has recited, if you will, the history of God's deliverance of the nation Israel. And it just starts back with the Passover, the first Passover, goes through the, through the Red Sea rescue. And so the nation is already saved, if you will, uh, by the time the law is given at Horeb. Passover and Exodus then were the rescue of the nation from Egyptian bondage and from the Egyptian army. And that salvation pictures the spiritual deliverance that God provides to his people. But individuals in Israel still had to appropriate the grace of God to themselves. So keeping the law wasn't the issue in terms of their eternal salvation. It was an issue in terms of their relationship with God as a nation. So verse 1 says, This is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Now, sometimes people get a little uncomfortable, unnecessarily, really, uh, when we start talking about the law and obedience to God. 
the word legalism often comes up. People throw this one around. You start talking about obedience, like legalism. But legalism is keeping a set of rules that God didn't set up to force God to bless you in some way or uh, whatever your desired uh, result of that legalism happens to be. Obedience, on the other hand, is how we respond to God. Jesus himself wants obedience from Christians. It's really interesting how much of what Jesus says uh, echoes what Moses says in the law. When Jesus uh, said to his disciples, he gave them the Great Commission, tail end of Matthew 28, verse 20, he says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Sounds a lot like Moses, doesn't it? Now, legalism is an issue when it comes to keeping the law. And dispute over the works of the law in the New Testament really uh, comes up. And it involves pretty well two strands of thinking. The first is an idea that uh, we as Christians already kind of know here. Works of the law can't save someone. That is, no one is granted forgiveness by God or granted eternal life on the basis of keeping the law. That's just human achievement. And that means, of course, that Israelites of Moses' day and later were never granted salvation on the basis of the law. And no one before Moses' day was ever granted salvation on the basis of any law of God that they kept before then. And are you surprised to learn that no one since then has ever been saved on that basis either? Now, we all understand that. No one's saved by works of the law. The second strand of thinking is a little bit more difficult to us because we don't enter into this, into the first century world where Paul lived and we're talking about uh, groups of, of, of Jews and Gentiles now and trying to bring them together. You read the book of Acts, for instance, and you run into these troubles. Acts 10, Acts 15. I'll give you those as, as stuff to read for the background to this. But the law in Moses' day, as well as all the way up to uh, until, well, even till now, the law served to separate God's people from the rest of the nations, so as to make them a people distinct from all the peoples around them, all the other peoples on the earth. And in particular, the Sabbath, the observance of the Sabbath, the observance of the food laws, the kosher laws, and circumcision uh, were used as identity badges to say, here's the way Israel is going to keep themselves separate from all the people, all the other people. Now, uh, it goes deeper than that, but those were the identity badges that Israel had, uh, had drawn from the law and perhaps to some degree perverted. Small wonder then that a lot of what the Apostle Paul's efforts are aimed at in his early letters, especially letters like Romans and Galatians, you knew I, I'd have to bring in the New Testament sooner or later, uh, <clears throat> was spent in showing Jewish Christians that Gentiles could receive the work of God, the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ, apart from works of the law. That is, apart from these badges, these identity badges. Okay, And this is why in, uh, in Acts 15, for instance, you'll find these uh, these former Pharisees saying, unless they're circumcised according to the law of Moses, they can't be saved. And the answer is, that's wrong. <laughs> uh, 
Gentiles come as Gentiles to Jesus and are accepted that way. Jews come as Jews and are accepted that way. So there's no sense in requiring a Gentile to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Did you catch that? Do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians? Well, no. That's, that's the whole answer of, of uh, Cornelius' conversion in Acts 10 and, and the Jerusalem Council, if you will, or conference, whatever you want to call that, in Acts 15, the whole dispute they have. Even so, the principle remains that God's people, now both Jews and Gentiles, who have experienced forgiveness in Jesus, need to be distinct from the rest of the world. And for Israel, Deuteronomy 6 was one of the passages that, uh, uh, that permitted that or that established it. So we operate here on the principle that God's people must remain uh, and maintain their distinctiveness from the world in order to have an impact on the world. You have to be distinct from the world in order to have an impact on the world. So the distinctiveness of God's people is maintained by obedience to the revealed will of God as contained in his word. And so one of the key reasons God gave the law of Moses to Israel was to prepare them for life in the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at verse 2. So that you and your son and your grandson, you see there's three generations there, the three and four generations are pretty important to that way of thinking. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life that the days that your days may be prolonged. So the starting point for obedience to God is reverence for him. The word used here is fear, but of course that word has connotations that we as English speakers can't really grasp in, in that way, and we probably wouldn't want to include in the biblical concept of fear. When the Bible says to fear God, it doesn't mean simply the cringing kind of terror that we have at something frightening. Uh, more to under, our understanding then would be something like uh, to take God seriously, but even that's gotten watered down. Uh, you know, take the, we, we take this very we take this law very seriously. Um, sometimes that means we aren't taking it seriously at all. Um, but maybe we could say it like this. To fear God means to reverence him in such a way that the only thing you fear is displeasing him by transgressing his commands. Not in the legalistic sense, of course, of keeping a, a list of rules, but with the meaning that you have a relationship with him and you want to do his will. So keeping God's will, verse 2 says, means you can avoid divine discipline, have a long life. It says that your days may be prolonged. Now, of course, that doesn't automatically mean that people who live to what we think is an old age are automatically to be considered godly. Um, <clears throat> and, and it doesn't mean that if someone dies young, whatever young means here, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, 40 is young, I think. For others, uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean that if someone dies young or dies old, you can, you, can, you can conclude anything from it. Sometimes it simply means that God has allowed someone to live out the fullness of the days that he has ordained for them, and his intent for them may be a short life or a long life. You, you don't know. But um, <clears throat> it does mean that your days will not be cut short prematurely by divine discipline. 
Now, verse 3 says, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. That land flowing with milk and honey is a way of talking about agricultural prosperity, where your, your cattle are producing and you've got honey, which means bees are operating there, and so your crops do well. And so verse 3 couches the rewards of obedience in terms of the prosperity God's people would enjoy while living in the promised land. And this was part of the covenant. Obedience brought blessing and disobedience brought cursing. You can read Deuteronomy 28 if you want more uh, development of how there are blessings and cursings. Now, I think this it's probably good here to stop and say there's a difference between cursing and misfortune. Uh, we can't equate everything that's, that's bad that comes into a life, and especially when it's someone else's life. You know, you can look at your own and say, well, maybe I'm, I am being cursed because I'm, you know. You know, you can look at your own life and you can make those determinations for yourself, but you can't make those determinations for somebody else. So uh, you can't equate misfortune with cursing. The reasons we endure suffering are, are manifold. Uh, a lot of it's probably just self-induced, I think. You know, you drop a hammer on your foot and, well, there you go. But uh, sometimes it is cursing from God, divine discipline, to get our attention to turn us back to Him. Other times it's suffering to make us focus on Him uh, or not because that we've done something wrong or something along those lines. But now in this passage, the focus of the message is the obedience that allows you to enjoy the blessing the right way. Uh, later in the passage, we won't, we won't cover it tonight, but verse 12 says, you know, once I've settled you in the land, you get all these blessings, uh, the warning label is, don't forget about me, don't forget about me, Yahweh, because I'm the one who gave you all these blessings. Well, so obedience is the proper response to relationship with God. That's our first principle. That was verses 1 through 3. In the balance of the passage we're going to cover tonight, verses 4 through 9, the principle is to be properly adjusted to reality, you must recognize who God truly is. To be properly adjusted to reality, you must recognize who God truly is. There's a lot of really interesting philosophical background to that kind of verbiage, but I, I, I'll, uh, I'll try to stay away from that tonight. We'll... Uh, We'll stay with the passage here, but verses 4 through 9 are really the heart of this passage in Deuteronomy 6, especially verses 4 through 5, as I've said. So God required of Israel a commitment to an exclusive relationship with Him expressed in loving devotion to assimilating His Word to everyday life, and you'll see that as this comes through here. Verse 4, the first word, this is the Shema. First word in Hebrew, uh, verse 4, gives it, of course, its name, like I said. And this, again, underscores hearing both as taking in the truth as well as responding to it in obedience. So he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So in verse 4, there are two statements in verse 4. You may have them translated in different uh, versions of different ways. <clears throat> uh, two statements mark the basis of this relationship between God and his people. 
in both, the covenant name of the God of Israel is the subject. It's, it's the so-called tetragrammaton, the four letters Y-H-W-H. And uh, the one thing we can be sure of is that it is not Jehovah. So that's the one thing we can't be sure, that we can be sure that it's not. But in terms of pronouncing it, you say it Yahweh, I say it my way. Okay. Well, anyway, um, Jehovah is just the imposition of the vowels for the word Lord, Adonai, uh, to make it Yehovah. But that's certainly not what you do when you're reading it in Hebrew. You just, when you come to that word, you read the word Adonai, the Lord. So the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Or Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. First statement then is Yahweh is our God. This emphasizes the special relationship between the believer and God. The second statement is Yahweh is one. So Adonai Eloheinu, Yahweh is our God, the Lord is our God, and Adonai Echad, Echad. That's Yahweh is one. This is an affirmation of God's oneness and his uniqueness. Now, these statements are actually intentionally broad, and they allow for two emphases that I think are going on at the same time. This is what's interesting about the language that's used here. The first emphasis, I suppose we could say, is that we can combine these two statements. The Lord our God is one God, meaning that there is only one God. There's only one true God in distinction to the gods of the nations. This statement, by the way, does not exclude the tri-unity of God, that is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It simply means that God can be no other than who He is. Uh, just the way He said to Moses at the burning bush, I am that I am. So uh, the first is we can combine the two statements, the Lord our God is one God. And you might find in your translation that that might be the way yours is, uh, is rendered. But the second is we can also understand these statements to mean the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Or the Lord alone is our God. And this emphasizes the exclusivity of God's relationship to Israel and Israel's relationship to God. And for us as believers, this means that we have an exclusive relationship with God because he's the only God. He's the only, in, in that sense, and, and uh, people claim that there are other gods, but there aren't really. And so this is what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, and he's trying to clarify with them what eating meat sacrificed to idols means. It's kind of uh, serendipitous that this morning we'd be talking about those, that passage. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says, With regard then to eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol in this world is nothing, and there is no God but one. So Paul, Paul says to the Corinthians, Hey, look, there's really no such thing as other gods. So this exclusivity is rooted in the truth of who God is. There's only one God, so he's the only one you can have a relationship with. So don't try to have a relationship with another God because there isn't one. But that, that's the most fundamental thing about the way the universe is, the way reality is, that there is only one God. Uh, and so this is, this is more profound than even, it, than even I have words to express. 
that this is the way the universe is. It's not a question of, we, you know, I believe it, therefore it's true. It's true, therefore I believe it. There's a difference between those. So you can't have a relationship with anyone but God, uh, so don't even try. That's another way we could state our principle. Verse 5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Verse 5 teaches us to respond to God's grace by loving him. Isn't this interesting? That, that the word here, of course, here, O Israel, Shema, is a command. And in verse 5, wa'ahavta, and you shall love. This is also a way to express a command. So the command here is to love God. That means love isn't a feeling. It isn't a question of, of uh, working up this emotion in yourself. I love God. I love God. I love God. Uh, because this is a command, it means that love is a choice. You think about that. You know how people throw that word love all around. You know, love. We can't help ourselves. We love one another. Um, no, but anyway, I won't get into that. Sorry. I just, so love is a choice. So you can choose to love God or not love God. And the way you choose, the way you show that you've chosen is that you obey his commands. The introduction to the Ten Commandments in the previous chapter, God through Moses makes the same equation. In, in uh, Deuteronomy 5.10, he says, But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So Moses says, essentially, if you love God, you'll keep his commandments. Hmm, that sounds familiar. I think Jesus, said, Jesus says in, in uh, John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, in Deuteronomy, the, the command to love is all-encompassing. Love is to be with all the heart, soul, and strength. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Heart and soul, of course, overlap in their meaning, so it would be hard to make a real distinction between them. The heart and the soul in the Hebrew Bible and their corresponding Greek terms in the New Testament, which are just translations of those words, encompass the inner person, including the thought, and the volition, the decision-making part of who we really are. And when Jesus cites this passage in the New Testament, in Matthew 22, verse 37, he adds, and with all your mind. Now, that's a really good contextualization of uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5, uh, because mind, to a Greco-Roman audience, conveys the same set of thinking that heart and soul convey to a Hebrew-speaking audience. And then back in Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says, and with all your strength. Now, that emphasizes the physical part of our makeup as well. So put this all together, and we have the sense that love for God needs to be a response that's complete, a complete response of the whole person involved. So our love for God should consume us completely. Now, to love God completely does not mean, of course, that you have to be weird or irrational about it. 
There's too many people running around saying, I love God and therefore I do X, and where X is, is something horrible or, or just outright strange. It simply means that you use everything about how God made you to love him. Uh, St. Augustine is uh, attributed with the statement, love God and do as you please. There, there, actually, you think about that. You know, If you love God, and this, maybe I could paraphrase it another way. Love God and be who you are. Okay, so, so when you love God with all of who you are, it means you are totally committed to the proposition that God is real and that you have a relationship with him. When you love God this way, in fact, you don't really give up who you really are. In fact, you never will really understand yourself until you love God completely. You will, you will only realize who you really are when you love God completely. It means that you're totally honest about your relationship with God, including sins and failures, because He's the one who made gracious provision for you uh, to have forgiveness and restoration when you do fail. So verse 5 focuses on the individual's responsibility to love God, and you shall love the Lord your God. Verses 6 through 9 then show us how the community reinforces this relationship with each other and with God. The primary means of expressing a love relationship to God is this, a concerted policy of memorization and meditation on the words of the covenant and their application to, to daily life. Maybe not, maybe not the exact words. Some people have harder time memorizing than others. But what I mean is an, a, a complete adoption of its worldview so that uh, you are thinking what God wants you to think rather than being sucked into the, what the rest of the world does. So look what he says in verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Engraving the words of God on your heart is not legalism. It's pursuing a relationship with him. You know, if, you, if, you love God, if you say you love God and you say God wrote the Bible, then why would you not want to commit it to memory as much as you can? Why would you not want to need it? So these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Now look at the next verse. Notice that it requires that divine truth be passed on to the next generation. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word used in verse 7 is a very interesting one. It's the, at the beginning of the, the word, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, at the beginning of verse 7. It's the word for repetition. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Now, after A.D. 70, when the second temple was destroyed by the Romans, as Jewish scribes and scholars passed on traditions about the interpretation of the law, they eventually wrote down their commentary in a series of tracts called Mishnah. 
The Mishnah is the noun form of the verb shana, which appears in verse 7. And so uh, the verb ends up being translated teach diligently, but it really has at its root the idea of repetition. You know, how do you teach something diligently to somebody? Well, the best way to learn something, of course, is memorization, right? That's the best way to teach somebody something, so memorize it to them. And my Greek students roll their eyes and go, oh, memorization, oh, yeah. Okay, just memorize this. <laughs> you, got, you, know, you only got 12 main paradigms to work with, so no problem. Uh, so to teach diligently, you, you, you keep on bringing it up. You repeat it. And, you know, it's funny. If you just repeat, you will end up memorizing something without trying if you repeat it enough times. And so all of this in verses 6 through 9 is aimed at developing a consistent worldview. When you repeat it long enough, people think with a true perspective on how to handle life because they're thinking what God wants them to think. So how do you do this? How do you pass this on? By constant repetition. You have to keep on chewing on this spiritual food of God's word, taking it in. Um, now, I'm using this in a couple of different ways. I hope you recognize that it's spiritual food that's, that is uh, sustaining you. That's constant intake. But also, uh, in chewing on this, I mean this kind of thing where it's not edible food like gum or something like that. You, you keep on chewing on it. It's constantly coming up, and you're, you're thinking about it, constantly processing it. And in constantly processing it, you're making connections. And this is exactly what the, the, the Jewish scribes we're doing and repeating and repeating and repeating it. They're making connections that you and I uh, just wouldn't think of making. But they but they know the scriptures backwards and forwards, and they're they're, they're saying this is like this passage and this passage. And they're, I mean, they're getting even down to the little bits of passages. And so you keep on chewing this spiritual food of God's word. You keep on bringing it to mind and mulling it over. And just like the man in the wilderness, it's your spiritual provision, and it is the Word of God that's sustaining you, just the way Jesus is the Word of God. Now, one of my colleagues, Eugene Merrill, you, know, you guys know Eugene Merrill, uh, wrote the uh, commentary in the New American Commentary series on Deuteronomy, uh, said this, and I, uh, forgive me for quoting a couple of, well, maybe three or four sentences here, but this is a really good quote, so I had to, had to bring it across to you. The pairing of these sets of contrasting places and postures forms a double merism using opposing terms to express an all-encompassing concept. Sitting suggests inactivity, and walking, of course, activity. Together, they encompass all of human effort. Likewise, to retire at night and rise up in the morning speaks of the totality of time. So important is covenant truth that it must be at the very center of all of one's labor and life.
Dr. Merrill is a great guy. I wish you guys could get to meet him. It's, uh, sometime we should get in his face. I would have been here. Uh, <clears throat> so in the previous section, we're in verses 4 through 9, in 1 through 3, as well as in the next section in uh, 10 through 15, which we won't get to tonight, the purpose of the law is to prepare Israel to live in the land. The law would prepare Israel for both battles and blessings, I guess I could put it this way. God is putting them in the right place using the law so that they will use, uh, they will appropriate the blessing to themselves in the right way. And this means that we too must be prepared with the word of God in advance so that we will live the way God wants us to. And so unless we as people recognize who God is and how our response to him must consume us, we've missed the most basic principles of how the universe operates. Now in modern practice, to return to some of what you might encounter in modern Judaism, some people put scripture verses on their home's doorposts in response to verse 9. You should write them on the doorposts. Some people put scripture verses in boxes and strap them with leather straps to their forearm and to their head. They, they come in sets, by the way. You, when you buy one of these things, it's a set. It's two of them. <clears throat> and some people understand the symbolic nature of these representations. But others, I fear, see the scripture verses as magic charms against evil. You know, if I just put one of these on my door, nothing bad is going to happen to my house. But, you know, to think that way is to really miss the intent of the passage, isn't it? When we think of how this passage ought to direct us, we can't simply say that we should memorize more Scripture. I don't, I don't want you coming away with that. Like, oh, no, I need to memorize more Scripture. Uh, this isn't one of those classic guilt trip kind of messages. Uh, it is true that we must memorize Scripture, but what this passage demands of us as believers is more than just memorization. It's transformation. Do we intentionally work at inculcating God's word into our lives? It's memorization of the word in a way that transforms our thinking and our worldview that we're after here. It's transformation of our lives so that we pass the sheep on to the next generation. Of course, uh, I suppose that I'm preaching to the choir since we, you're here on a Sunday night, not a Sunday morning. But it uh, does well to remember these things because, because this passage uh, is one of many that get repeated all over and over and over again. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the intent, I think, of Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. To transform our thinking so that we have an exclusive relationship with God as his people. The sons of Korah, the priest, express our deepest needs in the words of Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. Your greatest longing will never be satisfied until you recognize that your greatest need, far beyond any requirement of life, is a relationship with God. 
God must be as real to you as your own life. And for this to become a reality in your life, you must learn to obey God. And in learning to obey, you realize the need for discipline and constant repetition. So chew on this more than the food that sustains your life. And in these words, you will find life and you will find it abundantly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul.